Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, We'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the writer Will McLean. Will's a huge ghost story buff and wrote a 1970s ghost story himself called The Apparition Phase. Will knows more about this sort of ghost story than anyone I know and the history of them, and he's chosen The Ghost Stories for Christmas of Lawrence Gordon Clark. This is part two, um, and if you have missed part one, go back and listen to that. Otherwise, go ahead if you dare. Welcome back, and we are, st- we are st- we've just been for a spooky lunch at a cafe full of skeletons, <laughs> genuinely because it's all decorative Halloween, yeah. uh, and we are still talking, oh, we're going to carry on talking about Lawrence Gordon Clark's astonishing run of ghost stories for Christmas for the BBC in the 70s, um, um, and we've just up- reached, we've just got, we've just, we've got past Lost Hearts, and now we are, we've, we've not looked at Lost Hearts because it was too scary, <laughs> uh, which is brilliant, and now we are on to the treasure of Abbott Thomas. There is much gossip among the canons concerning a certain hidden treasure of this Abbot Thomas. What Abbot Thomas? Of this foundation. He died rather suddenly in 1429. It's said that he escaped burning by being carried off by the devil. Why burning? Oh, he was an alchemist. One might almost say a magician. Not at all a suitable occupation for a 15th century churchman. It's a fairly straightforward Jamesian plot. Yeah. It feels a lot like the stores of Barchester in a way. Yeah. Uh, you've got a uh, pair of academics who yeah. uh, who are searching for a lost treasure. Yeah. So it's pretty straightforward and they find it and it doesn't go well. What I like about this one, people object sometimes to ghost stories because they don't have to sort of make sense. Mm. As long as they're uncanny. Uh, and they prefer like a Sherlock Holmesy thing where there's a puzzle to be solved. There's a certain kind of brain that likes that. And this has got a little bit of both. I quite it's like this. Both. It's got a proper puzzle trail in it. A little mm. bit sort of Kit Williams masquerade. They will look for clues, <laughs> yes. um, uh, which is quite seventies. But I and like the fact that they, they they follow a proper little trail. And the puzzle is really good. Yeah, it's, it's not like the well, mystery of the dancing men, the uh, Sherlock Holmes <laughs> one, where the code is breakable by a three-year-old. Yeah, it's not Da Vinci Code, where sometimes it's an anagram. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's a properly good academic puzzle, and also the kind of puzzle that academics like, like cryptic yes. crosswords and things. It feels very Mr. James. And what's remarkable is that some of it isn't from M.R. James. It's invented by Lawrence gordon Clark yeah. and John Bowen, who wrote the script. This is the, one of the first ones that Lawrence gordon Clark didn't write the screenplay for. Um, and it's invented. There's, a, there's Latin puzzles and things. All the additions to this feel really Jamesian. Super lapidem unum septem oculi sunt. Upon one stone are seven eyes. It's also got this fantastic interlude at the beginning where you get Michael Bryant, who's our academic in this, who's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. He's he's likeable but short-tempered. He's got an inquisitive mind, and he's quite heroic in his own way. But at the beginning, you see him 
make fools of a pair of fake mediums. It's a brilliant filmic opening. And what it is, again, it's been added by John Bowen and, and Lawrence Gordon-Clark to the story. And it's a way of saying, look, it's not just enough to tell a story of a cipher academic. Mm. We need to know who he is. What does he want? And the idea is, he's a ghostbuster. Yeah. It's how you'd open a really good Hollywood ghostbusting film. Good evening, my children. Good evening, Father. Have you any message for us? I bring words of comfort and joy, my child. He's a rationalist as well, which is always good. And uh, so he he begins by uh, very sort of publicly humiliating these two mediums, who you see leaving in disgrace, which is a good... You know, the, the other thing about Lawrence Gordon-Clark is he has these lovely little shots which finish people's stories. These two people just leaving with suitcases. You mentioned as well that there's a, a really good class awareness in Lawrence Gordon-Clark, which isn't in M.R. James because he's an elitist. The class awareness in this is as you watch the people leaving who are the, the spiritualist mediums who've been exposed and disgraced by him, you feel for them. Yeah. And you went, they were just making a living. And even worse... They were just giving comfort. Yeah, and that's all they had. Rational, a man, an elite man, says... Abrasive man. What you're doing wasn't worth doing. <laughs> if you'll excuse me, you have a frog in your throat, I think. Hmm. Ingenious. There are your spirits of the air, Lady Dattering. And actually, in a worldly way, you go, oh, he's heroic. He's done a, th- mm. a cool thing. He's done a rationalist thing, so he's my hero. He's Richard Dawkins. He's cool. And then suddenly, like we all felt about Richard Dawkins, you start to go, oh, actually, you're not very nice. <laughs> and it's he's, a lovely bit of character work. He also removes their living. He removes the way yeah. they have of making a living. I mean, they may have been a horrible pair of parasites who are making money off someone else's grief, but that's kind of how they're sustaining themselves. And they're also they're offering comfort. And yeah. he's, he's of that rationalist bent that goes, you don't need comfort. If the yes. comfort isn't real, you don't need it. And that is a very masculine, very Victorian, very elitist way of looking at things. And actually, there's a bit of the, in the direction of this that says he might be wrong. Mm. And that is perfect. What you need in an M.R. James story is a bit of academic arrogance. Yes. And you suddenly feel he's very arrogant. How strange that a priest of that time, who must have spoken Latin and Norman French better than he spoke English, should now understand neither language. And again, the beautiful performance. Lawrence Gordon-Clark said that Michael Bryant's performance in this was his favourite, next to Denham Elliott in The Signalman. I can absolutely see why, because he's, it's a man who also overplays his hand, Yeah. Um, whereas the others are, are prigs from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. He is almost emboldened by this incident with the mediums and then, and then becomes more and more arrogant as it goes on. And then eventually, as he does, he becomes a huge victim of his own pride, yeah. When he does find this treasure. There's a proper character arc to it. And those little moments of vulnerability that when he's looking for clues and he ends up on the roof of the of the cathedral, at Wells Cathedral, looking down, he's frightened. Mm. And he gets scared. He gets scared of heights and he gets scared that he's exposed. And then there's a beautiful scene where he's attacked by something nameless. Yeah. And it's just done by him flapping his own cape in the camera, yeah. clearly. Yeah. But I believe completely that something had a go at him. Yeah. You don't, you don't <laughs> walk away thinking that didn't happen. <laughs> What's the matter? I don't know. Uh... Some, something seemed to come at me. Um, it's also the, the ghost in this. Is Occasionally, M.R. James, who is our foremost ghost writer, doesn't have a ghost in his story. And it, it's not really clear what this thing is, but at one point Michael Bryan said, it is, it is a thing of slime. And it is a thing of slime. It's like it's, like it's made of treacle. Yeah. And it sort of oozes horribly out of the recess in the disgusting tunnel where they find a treasure. We should talk about this, because I think uh, Lawrence Gordon-Clark has said about some of the special effects in his in, in these, they, oh, I wish we had the technology we have today. Mm. And I almost want to go, no, don't, because... I, no, you'd absolutely been, not. You'd have been tempted to show more of it, which is a mistake that has been made in ghost stories since very often. But also... I wonder and marvel at the imagination with which they use the limited resources and limited budget they've got to show you things that stay in your mind yes. and live with you. That was spectacular and will haunt me. Yeah, it's uh, particularly the thing of slime that pours, <laughs> pours out of the wall. Your brain is left to do the work because you see so little of it. I mean, yeah. it's a very, very obvious thing, but it works so well. It's this tiny little pinch of chilli, which makes the whole yeah. thing, you know, it lights up the whole thing. I think it is remarkable when you look at the proportions of these films. Again, another reason why they're so rewatchable. If they were relentless jump scares, they might become less uh, revisitable. Mm. But because 99% of it is atmosphere and texture, yes. you can enjoy it again and again. And because the tiniest amount of pepper is in these, mm. which is the, the shots of ghosts, the, the scares, the jumps, the was that a face? 
that proportion is the perfect amount to make it comforting because you know you're not going to be too scared. Yeah. It's not going to keep jumping out at you. And also to revisit and appreciate all the other features apart from the ghosts. This also has a killer ending, uh, which isn't in the story. In the story, Sensational ending. In the story, uh, the Michael Bryant character is, is forever changed by his experiences. But in this, um, he's confined to a wheelchair afterwards because this is, this is pre-Sigmund Freud. So he's had a nervous brain illness of the yeah. very vague variety that Victorians have. So he's <laughs> sitting there at the end on his own and one of the monks who or is it comes up and it, you you see him approach michael bryan and it just cuts to black yeah and it's, it's, Which, it's oh. it, in the distance again it's using a similar technique as he used in uh, a warrant to the curious in the distance you go oh it's a doctor come to help yeah and then suddenly you cut away to a lovely this is a very very good uh one for high angle shots mm. lots of use of cathedrals and and if they're in a building where you can get a high angle shot they're up there looking down look down on him and then it's not a doctor who comes up to him and then cut away yeah it's but a, you know there are monks on the premises so we've established it might not be maybe it's a monk lovely ambiguity but also possibly the baddies come for him mm. the thing of slime has come in the form yeah. of, of a person and also testament to and i don't know the technicality of this so i'm going to make this up it's a 16 mil <laughs> camera it's a small portable thing he's a documentary maker and he's got a documentary maker's eye for let's quickly take the portable kit somewhere we can top of a church look down it doesn't feel like a lot of drama does at the time where you've got big heavy tv cameras or even big heavy film cameras i think the advantage of these films is they've got the same nimbleness that you get in the blair witch project and things that it's portable kit it's a thing of darkness one would be quite safe by day and if it be indeed a guardian peter it will approve of you putting the treasure back. Your logic is faultless, as always. Of course I'll do it. That horrible waterlogged tunnel they end yeah. up in as well, I don't think you could film in that with it, with anything bigger than a handheld yeah. thing. Yeah, and if it's video, you'd need lots of light. So basically, again, all the things that mitigate against being scared when you watch other dramas of this vintage, the fact that it's studio lighting or the fact that it's bright light that a video camera can get, they get to do all this stuff in really low lighting, which is the mark of a classy psychological horror. When you watch something like uh, The Others or something, where it's all lovely by candlelight, that lovely Victorian mm. thing. There's also in uh, Shalk and the Painter that Leslie McGacky made as part of these vague series of, of spooky BBC things. Everything being done on natural light and everything being done in small spaces, they can do that because he's a documentary maker with a tiny little camera. Yeah. It's, and also the, the the less is more approach is, to me, exemplified by the bit in that where Michael Bryant tells his friend, his other academic friend, to go and put the treasure back. And he says, <laughs> you have to put it back, you have to put it back. And he lets that just hang there. And as a viewer, you're watching and think, is he going to put it back? Yeah. Or is he just going to abscond with it? And, and it just, because he, he does put it back, but it, because that question mark is there, they do that a lot. I mean, it, it's so, your expectations yeah. of viewer are so well handled that you are left always to wonder about something, the outcome of something. And it makes it endlessly rewatchable. That's, again, your balance with, with clarity. Is, again, this is a story told with utmost clarity. There's not a moment you don't know what's going on. Mm. The detective work is lovely. You see loads of techniques that are used in lots of later horror films. There's a lovely bit where uh, the other academic, the younger academic, played by Paul Lavers, who'd go on for a legendary career as a presenter for About Anglia, if anyone grew up in East Anglia. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm obsessed by him. He's sort of slightly partridge you, You've got a Paul Lavers anecdote. I have. I'm so obsessed by Paul, uh, Paul Lavers. <laughs> Jason went and followed him round and ended up, he said, I want someone to, uh, I want some people to come and act out and be uh, the letters of the words about Anglia <laughs> uh, on a helicopter shot. And we turned up and there were about eight of us. So all of us had to be like an entire letter mm. on our own. It was very funny, but he's sort of a Richard Madeley-ish kind of uh, Alan Partridge right. local presenter but he's also a very good young actor and he's he was great, great in this wonderful yeah. completely the right kind of dashing sort of ian ogilvy-ish kind of foppy-ish yes young young good-looking lad and there's a brilliant bit of detective work where paul lover's character has a camera so he's got a brilliant piece of kit which is used in horror movies to this day which is there's something creepy about staring close into images and seeing mm. things in images you couldn't do the classic reason why ghost photographs are interesting yes um, and there's a brilliant bit where they've taken a picture of these these windows that have, that have got the clue as to where the treasure is and suddenly somewhere in dark room light uh, in a negative shot there's something lost in the window that wasn't there yeah. a face or something that you're peering into i had thought it was a blemish in the glass of the window itself but shh, shh, shh. but as you say it is not on the other plate nor on your drawing i'd wager will you please to look at the blemish again justin does it remind you of anything? No particular thing. A face of some sort, perhaps. Look at the scroll. At Spichet de Chalice ut absconditor vidiat. He looks down from on high to see what is hidden. Will you look again at the blemish? 
and that's uh, that's in the uh, the omen that distortion of faces in the yeah. photographs it's in uh the ring it's in shutter it's again another great j horror technique staring into a photo and saying is that a face in it all that's in this and it's done brilliantly and it's echoed later on by them spilling ink over michael bryant's illustration of the same windows it's yeah. like there's a lot there's just so much going on in it and it like we say they, they are endlessly rewatchable for that reason but if it was just jump scares you would it would not be regarded in the same way Rewatching these treasure of albert thomas which is always regarded as a minor one it's jumped up for me i think yeah i, I know really, i really enjoyed I, it. I was really impressed by it this time around And the next one, which is 1975, they were turning these out one a year. The idea is there's a regular commission for these because they always work. Critics love them. Audiences love them. He's got a little factory here that's making these. And the next year he does The Ash Tree, which is a cracking, scary, weird M.R. James story. Yeah, this is up there with um, Lost Hearts, really, is the the one that's pure horror. The Scarred for Life people, um, if you've not heard of Scarred for Life, they've they've more or less collected everything from the 70s and 80s. It's terrifying <laughs> into one volume. And it's excellent. So please get hold of that if you can. Um, but they... They said this is the one where the gloves come off. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, this, I mean, this is a monster one. This, yeah. is, this is basically, this is creepy as hell. This is the last one I collected when I was collecting these. Uh, it was always missing for me. And I got it <laughs> two weeks before the DVD came out. Um, and so I always thought, oh, because people, people aren't sharing this and I haven't managed to get it from anybody, this must be a shit one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not. Um, it's by David Rudkin, who wrote Pender's Fen. And like classic David Rudkin, it has too many ideas in it. <laughs> that he's delivering too fast and expecting you to keep up. Mm. But again, because of that, re-watching this keeps revealing more and more lovely layers to it. Yes. I think first time you watch The Ash Tree, you go, what the bloody hell's going on? Second and third time, it starts to really uh, blossom. It's a great, great... Yeah, it adaptation. coheres much better than you give it credit for on yeah. the first viewing. I think there's a lot. But it tells you as well how clear Lawrence Gordon Clark's writing is, is that this one has the dense, layered plotting that a play for today, 70s playwright, would give it. It's got two time periods with matched actors. You're not, it's not quite clear who's going where and what they want. It's all sort of very, very veiled and cloaked and it makes you realize that when you're watching peter vaughan dig with a spade in a wood mm. how much more fun these were to watch when it was a bare minimum yeah. of interference a, a really tasteful writer lawrence gordon clark who doesn't put too much in, he doesn't show off no no but this one does also have the incredible climax which yeah. everyone knows about uh where the spiders from the ashtray and they are just spiders in, in the mr james one they're not spiders old, in this one <laughs> certainly not spiders in this one they're they're, they're sort of water balloons with the faces of babies it's the, it little... builds towards a monster build that again uh, lawrence gordon clark has said that again he feels uncomfortable about some of the special effects but because of that he cuts away mm. you half glimpse impossible creatures it builds with climax it's about uh, a witch burial from Puritan times from just after the Civil War and someone inherits a house where their ancestor done, done hung a witch <laughs> uh, and the question is where is the witch buried there's some questions about that and it becomes clear that there's something evil in the ash tree that's bordering this man's bedroom where he's trying to sleep uh, that's got bad things in it and it's revealed that there is a nest of something in the ash tree that comes in through his window at night and when it comes in through his window at night it is the most horrible thing <laughs> Yeah, it would. E once again, it would easily become ridiculous. I think uh, if it was handled any other way. But yeah. these things, these things, sort of gleefully, the, the sound design as well is always excellent. And this one, this sort of little child face things gleefully capering into the room on the little tick legs it's horrible it's a horrible image and they sort of come to suck the blood of the the lord of the manor and it, it's it is a it's relentlessly a proper... horrible sequence it's interesting that in these these things which are ostensibly sort of edwardian ghost stories you're starting to see things that are happening in cinema at the same time certainly in cinematic horror and they're all being borrowed and kept completely within Lawrence Gordon Clark's television world. It doesn't feel like they're nicked, but it's it's keeping up with the levels of horror that are in films. And this one feels like, this is a good uh, sort of seven years before the thing. Mm. The latex work, the model work, the creature work in this, the only thing, especially because as it is in the original M.R. James, the, the spiders are driven out eventually by fire. Yeah. And you see these blazing little rubber shapes with legs in the fire, and it looks like the head from the thing. Yeah. It, just everything about this feels really, really uh, 80s prosthetics. Yeah. It's really good. It is very, very good indeed. It's also... Um 
It's much more sexual than the others. The Lord and Lady of the Manor are quite raunchy. He's reading Tom Jones. He's going out with Romana. He's going out with Romana from Doctor Who. So obviously there's a lot, lot to think about there. She's putting up sort of dirty pictures. Again, it's very, David Rodkin is uh, one of his themes. Uh, if you've not seen Pender's Fen, it's one of my favourite things. But mm. one of his themes is a battle in England between liberality versus yeah. conservatism and sex. And it's, it was a big debate at the time because of Mary Whitehouse and mm. the Festival of Light. It's very much explicitly done in Pender's Fen. And here, similarly, lots of academics walk across fields talking about repression and, yes. and liberation and the changing times. And in this, she's putting up pictures and lithographs on the wall of sort of sexiness mm. within this very repressed Puritan house. And the idea being that there might be punishment for this. It's also very it's very justified all that sexy stuff because it, it it's played against the Puritan ancestor yeah. taking obviously what is we would now understand as a completely sexual interest in humiliating this woman who's a witch. Yeah. I mean she because it's ML James, she is genuinely a witch because <laughs> she does magic things. But it is his tormenting of her is so clearly He's clearly into it, and it's it's done in a very understated way. But it, juxtaposing those two things really, really works. I think the 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 two time zones yeah. where they're both they handle different uh, same themes in different ways. No wonder, Lady Mothersoul, you cannot answer. You spark in the moonlight, still in your night shape, two forelegs short, two hind legs long. Sir Matthew, Sir Matthew, what can be the matter? Is someone six side at the house? Because it's double cast. The same guy plays uh, Edward Prethbridge plays both the uh, the Puritan ancestor and the newly sexy modern guy who's taken over the, the house and wants to change it. And similarly, shares themes with a lot of horror where it's a conflict between modernity and antiquity. It's the same thing that's happening in obviously later in Stigma, mm. where something ancient and you're has been built upon and you're trying to rip out the old thing and put the new thing in, and the old thing comes back and says, "Do not." Uh, put your modern morality, your modern values on top of this thing which on is much thing. older than you. Now, your extension to the church, I foresee no difficulty there. Oh, I understand an exhumation will be necessary, but that is not an exercise for me. There's a brilliant sequence where the witch is tied up and she's topless, she's bare-breasted, and it's a shocking thing to see within these kind of fairly genteel adaptations. But to see the Puritan sort of looking at her and, and the camera lingers on his face with its sort of... You know, there's there's more going on there than doing simply doing God's work, and it, it is it's very powerful. But no words are spoken. It's absolutely amazing. I think, and it's also got a lovely. And the other thing that's great about this, which you do get, uh, uh, Lawrence Gordon Clark is a good dialogue writer. He's not bad, but you do get the extra bonus of David Ruckin's astonishing prose in <laughs> yes. this. And he he chooses a different curse for the the witch than is in the original story, mm. where she says something like, uh, "You'll get covered in spiders in the middle of the night" or something. <laughs> uh, whereas in this, her curse as she's about to be hung is mine shall inherit yeah which and they go, repeat oh god that's brilliant yeah I mean, that stays in the mind, doesn't it? It's absolutely. Uh, yeah. Once again, yeah, another mm. thing about class, because the idea of this guy's inherited a house, he's of a class that just yeah. does stuff, and he has persecuted a working woman who was just making a living. Yeah. Uh, and making a living using her skills and helping people out, as is often the case, the witches, they were they were wise women and things. And that very James Young idea that revenge and grudges are, they survive death always. <laughs> they are immortal, those kind of toxic emotions. She comes to him away. with a load of Rob Bottin great prosthetics, <laughs> and she's they take revenge. Also, so she's entirely justified i think that may be uh, is that a simplification of the original story i don't know ml james and, and women obviously is a very weird subject but i think i think it's in the original story that the witch is sort of she gets her revenge and it's sort of justly so it feels very much of its time as well. There's a sort of feminist subtext to this, which is good, uh, and it has then puts it in common with things like Nigel Neal's Moraine, which mm. is a fantastic play, yes. where, where the question is, is it a witch, is it a witch? Yes! It turns out to be a witch! Yes. Um, there's a great uh, strain in British uh, supernatural horror on TV at the time, which is that some of the curses which previously maybe in stories would have been seen as abstract are now justified. They're real. You don't mess with these women. They can hurt you, and they hurt you for good reason. You're also looking at that period of history in the 70s of a re-examining of the witch craze, you know, which has begun in, in, in the 50s with uh, the Crucible and so yeah. on, is that saying that maybe there's more going on here than we thought. You know, whereas it was it did get taught it as historical fact at school and unexamined. You know, yeah. it was like it wasn't, there were, there were, you know, there was a craze for burning witches. That was all we heard about. There was no, no. like, why did, why did this take root? Yeah. Why did this happen? Why did it become a, an obsession for people? And uh, you, you're not, it wasn't unpacked in that way. And this is very much part of that unpacking, I think. Yeah, it's a starting of a re-examination of it. Around the same time as 
with Gerald Gardner and thinks there's a huge increase in interest in witchcraft and alternative lifestyles. Suddenly everyone's into Yuri Geller and tarot cards. And things. <laughs> it feels like quite a good time to be looking at this and saying, well, hang on, it wasn't just about finding witches and dealing with the problem as if they were a, a, like an outbreak of a cowpox or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't to do with that. It was something far more complicated. And this is a lovely play about that entire world, though probably one that it only opens up after two or three viewings. Mm, I'd say that that was, yeah, this one has shot up in my estimation again um, this time round. Again, they're comfort blankets. Go yeah. back and have a look at them again because you find stuff in them you hadn't spotted. You can. And also, the, the, you know, they are they are perfect post-Freudian ghost stories. You can read them any number of ways, which is, you know, they don't they don't admit of a single interpretation or even more, you know, just two interpretations. There are <laughs> m- many, many things going on there. And that brings us to probably the most accessible of all of these, the one that people sometimes watch first. Because it's got Denim Elliott in it. And it's just, I mean, this is a classy one. This is the Signalman, uh, 1976. First time not doing an M.R. James. This is a Dickens. Yeah. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant period drama. Let me ask you one question, sir. What made you say hello below there this evening? Oh, heaven knows. I said something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those are the very words. I know them well. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. You have no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way. It's a psychological puzzle that doesn't resolve, really. It's about a man haunted by guilt that seems to have an odd relationship with time and space in that the guilt he feels is both the past and the future... And there's also a foreshadowing of his own doom, which seems inescapable and is. Yeah. And there's a horrid feeling that's just circular in a way. Yeah. We're watching something that's played out again and again and again. It's brilliant. Who is it? I I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw his face. The left arm is across the face and the right arm is waved. Violently waved this way as if to say for god's sake clear the way there's something really creepy in the staging as well and it's it's a it is a signal mundanum elliot plays a guy who's working a signal box he's lonely uh, it's a place you might go mad and he's visited by uh, by a visitor who comes to talk to him who's not really clear what the visitor wants apart from just to have a chat with a guy mm. on a railway we like people on railways you might have some stories yeah. and he comes to visit him but the the setting is he's down in a railway cutting by a tunnel and the first time we see the visitor he's shouting down into the tunnel hello below there hello below there to mm. the guy below who looks up at him terrified as if he's just seen as if he's seen a ghost mm. and then we find out why he's scared but they're trapped in this cleft of land that really There's makes no it out. i think There's, it's the it's the uncanniness of the railway siding do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley even now as we speak the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires and it's it's this tiny little hut, yeah. And the enormous responsibility on this one man. So it's a deliberately constructed, trapped place to tell a ghost story. And what would have been when it was written in the eighteen sixties, a modern ghost story set with all the trappings of modern technology. This is poltergeist, basically. Yeah. This is only improved with age because railways are incredibly spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so and so also as well, just seeing the mouth of this tunnel. His view is the railway cutting, which is bleak enough. Then there's just the mouth of the tunnel and the fact that there's already been. A terrible, terrible accident, which he's partially or feels partially responsible for. And it's the setup in here, more than any of the others, is that the visitor must come and visit him in his little hut, and they sit by the fire, and he tells him a series of ghost stories. Yeah. So this is the most stripped-down version of the Jamesian ghost story, because all you're doing, you're being invited via a character to listen to some scary stories, and it's staged. I think probably the most successful staging end to end the ghost itself is brilliant mm. the realization the other stuff around it and again we should talk about things like the sound effects and these are all really good yeah the sound there's a bell that sounds to warn that something bad is about to happen and it's, and it's unignorable the bell instead of it ringing it hums yeah it makes a sound that <laughs> yeah, is completely it's... uncomfortable uh, Which again is a very modern way of cinematic ghost storytelling. It's wrong. Something's yeah. wrong. This a train would make a ringing noise, mm. but this makes another noise, yeah. and it haunts you. And even thinking about it now, I've got the, the <laughs> hairs are going up on my, yes. my arms. The method of telling the story in this is haunting. Mm. You're invited in close up 
again, small cameras in a small space, close up on faces, faces in natural light. You're watching a man be scared. I have no rest or peace for it. He calls me for minutes together. An agonised shout. Below there, look out, look out. It stands there waving to me. It rings my little bell. As you said at the, at the beginning of introducing this, this is an era where technology starts to put people at very, very odd relations to other people. So you have this man who, who to all intents and purposes, lives for 10 hours a day in a railway cutting. Like a troll. And, you know, <laughs> and he's, but his only relationship with the humanity is through uh, the telegram, through the bells, yeah. the electric medium of, of he's communication stuff. And the only people he sees are passengers on a train that go whooshing past. It's about you know, isolation. Yeah, he's completely isolated. This is the same. The British Library are doing this fantastic series of, they've been doing it for years, the last four or five years, I think, these reissues of forgotten ghost stories. And they often will focus on, uh, the more recently about spooky media. Yeah. And the media, and things like radio when they come in and x-rays and yeah. how, how odd they are and how alienating this new perspective is. Yeah. You know, the horror of um, Madame Ronken when she first sees the, the bones in her hand. Well, you don't know what it is. Know. It's one of the things that's in common with uh, things like Ghost Watch, which mm. is about live television yeah. broadcasting. Yeah. When new technology comes in, there's, there's a way of exploiting it for the uncanny because you're not quite sure what you're looking at. Mm. And what's really odd about this is, is it's a brilliant encapsulation. A hundred years after it had happened of saying this is how weird yeah. this technology felt to someone of Dickens's era yeah. that suddenly you talk about distortion of time because of the railway suddenly you could be somewhere on the other side of the country much quicker than was natural yeah. to the extent that they had to adjust your watch because you weren't used to the fact that different towns used to have different times this is a place where suddenly communication will be transatlantic or instantaneous from Bristol to London what are the consequences of this distortion of time and reality and and the basic question that happens with the train crash, are we going too fast? Yeah. No, 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 no. I've never confused the spectre's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring, sir, is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else. I've not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I, I don't wonder that you fail to hear it if you speak the truth, but I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there! Both times? Both times! And this is the thing that always comes about when you've got the collision of technology and human beings, is that initially you have... You know, photography, when a photography takes off, it's, you know, everyone's getting their, their photograph taken with their family. And then a few years later, family members die. And yet their image is there yeah. when they're alive. And that's a new thing for human beings to have to come to terms with. And yes. it's the same now when somebody dies and, and their Facebook page is still there. Yeah, you're haunted it's, by it. It's, if technology embraces humanity, it's going to have to embrace the full spectrum of, of human experience. And that includes mortality and, yeah. and loss. And, and those often, things are going to find expression through technology. And often you don't. What What's happening in here is that a human element within some machinery, mm. which is this man, the signal man, yeah. the signal is <laughs> the man is still a man. Yes. Within that thing, there's a human being, there's a human soul in the middle of this machinery. What you're finding in this story is that the supernatural exists in that space where you're uncomfortable with, with technology. Yes. So little to do with so much depending on it. I wonder what you do with your mind. Another thing that I like about this one comes from its stripped downness and it touches on an area that I really find fruitful. It's psychoanalytic in a way. It's almost like the guy coming to visit the signal man is a therapist. Yes. They have these little sessions where they just it's just the two of them talking. Yeah. And the the guy talking to him, the visitor doesn't really reveal very much about himself. But the signal man sort of unburdens himself of this terrible guilt that he feels yeah. and all the rest of it. And they have that. There's a big crossover between psychoanalytic theory and ghost stories. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, um, Freud was endlessly using things like Hamlet to illustrate yeah. um, the persistence of, of things in the unconscious. Do you spend all your hours of duty down here between these cold, dark walls? Well, in the early days, I'd sometimes find a slack time to climb up into the sunlight, but my the work was always here to draw me down. I'd listen for the bell, you see. Well, my face would be in the sun, but my mind would be down here in the dark and the shadows. I think the mind makes its own places, sir. 
Well, that's where ghosts live. This is the idea is what, what these people are describing very often in a ghost story when someone says, something happened to me and I can't explain it. Mm. It's like sharing a dream with someone. Yeah. And you're never sure whether someone's telling you about a nightmare or whether this really happened. And the question that's being asked is, has he been driven mad by isolation? Yes. And is he imagining this stuff or is it real? And the contract, because it's a ghost story at Christmas, is you have to fall on the side of this is real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... It's also about asking someone, are you sure you saw what you think you saw? Or yeah. were you just driven mad by loneliness? Or the other thing that I'm interested in is, does it matter? I can't... Is it, it's been a while since I read Freud, but I think it's the Ratman case where he's telling Freud about his difficult relationship with his father. And at one point, about six months in, he, he tells him that his father's dead. And Freud's like, well, you've not actually... <laughs> You didn't mention, you know, <laughs> this puts a different complexion on everything. But it's it's that thing of like, you know, if, if yeah, things in the unconscious, they, it's, they have no relation to time or space. They don't die. Yeah. They don't, you know, and so what you come back to is this man who's trapped in a physical manifestation of his own guilt and his own foreboding in this railway cutting that he cannot escape from. It's his job to be there. There's industrialization of this, the idea that human beings are being used within the empire, within industrialization, to become machines themselves. To be his job is to be an electrical relay yeah. within <laughs> yes. something. And Dickens, being someone who's very sensitive to this kind of stuff, feels that. And there's enormous empathy for this man who's being asked to do a job that's impossible for a human to do. Yeah. To sit there and be infallible. Because if he fails, people will die. You've been asleep. Don't worry, you have no responsibilities here. Oh, forgive me. You have no call to be here. And being here, there's no charge on you to do this or that. Sleep or wake, nothing will suffer for it. Can we just say how good Denim Elliott is in this as well? He's absolute... We should say it together. Denim, Denim Elliott is, is really, really good, good in this. this. Um, he's a, absolutely plays a marked man from the very beginning. It's amazing. The, the definition of haunted. I mean, his, the look in his eyes. Yeah initially when he, he sees the, uh, I'm going to say the psychiatrist, uh, the guy comes to visit him and he's going, hello there. And he, there's just a, a, yeah. It's, it's a great trick as well. I observed this again, talking about Dead of Night, that sometimes all it's required to sow a feeling of unease is to start off with something completely benign. Mm. Two people saying hello to each other. <laughs> and one self person says hello and the other person looks frightened, yes. which isn't the reaction to hello. No. So you go, oh, I feel uneasy. Yeah. And that reaction in Denim Elliott's face to someone just waving at him, he's lonely. Someone's come to say hello. That's a nice thing his reaction is not what as human beings we expect that reaction to be we suddenly go something's wrong mm. and immediately in a sense of basic evolutionary psychology you're put on high alert yes and the moment you're on high alert you're ready to be told a ghost story and this is something that's very very important in in horror and you will know this is somebody who writes horror the first thing that has to happen is you have to put your brain in a horror receive mode. It has to be a bit jangly, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is often why you start with a scare or start mm. with someone looking uneasy or a look of fear on someone's face. And you, as a basic organism, an evolved organism, go, I can see someone in the tribe is frightened. Yeah. There must be a reason for that. Yeah, this is it. You, and then you're ready to be told a scary story. If you set things in the woods, you expect things to go wrong in the woods. Yeah, so you're, it's like, yeah you're on yeah. high alert. It's why you wander. It's it's to do with a really fascinating thing about how horror works is that it turns on your amygdala, your, your fight or flight response. Mm. And it can be turned on and then, you think, turned off again. The classic thing that happens in a horror film where there's something in the shadows, oh, it's a cat. Mm. And your logical, rational brain goes, well, I know it's a cat, so I'm safe now. <laughs> what you forget is that your amygdala isn't a switch, it's a tap. <laughs> so the chemicals are in your system ready to jump. Right. And so when the monster or the killer jumps out, you jump and you go, but I knew it was just a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Without realising that your system was all in high alert mode and it might take you 10 minutes to calm down. Mm. And it's playing with that. And one of the things that can be done in a really good psychological horror like this is turn the tap on at the beginning. Yeah. Make you feel uneasy. Yeah. And then they can just yak for a bit. We can just have some beautiful shots of sunsets for a bit. You're still ready to jump. And it is an absolute symphony and unease, this whole exercise. <laughs> uh, honestly, it, it, we've talked about the single man a great deal here, but it is a, it's a rewarding text because it's we've already talked about it in light of technology and psychoanalysis. You know, it's, but it is, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a great ghost story. It's a pure ghost story because it, it hinges on something that... Uh, is uncanny but cannot really be ever picked apart. One foggy night, I was sitting here watching the patterns in the fire and I heard a voice. Hello! Vanilla! Hello! We've been really careful here not to do any spoilers. And the weird thing is, if you buy the box set of mm. this 
uh, Ghost Hunter <laughs> Christmas. On the front of it is a picture of the ghost from the Signalman. Yeah. It's, now the reason is because it's a magnificent it's a ghost. Great ghost. It's a yeah. really good ghost build. But I remember looking at it and going, "Don't do that." It's like when they put the Wicker Man on the front of the Wicker Man. You yeah. know, that's the big. That's payoff. the big bit of the end. But yeah. oddly, it doesn't spoil it. No. I thought it would do. It would stop me enjoying it because one of the great things that happens in the signal when every time I watch it is I look away when that ghost appears because I'm frightened. Yeah. <laughs> and it's now it's on the front of the box. I'm forced to face it all the time. But it's still, a re- it's a, again, it's a great build, great art department, great design. Yes. It doesn't let you down when you do see it. And the music and the sound effects and everything help you. Wow, enormously. we both love the signal one, don't we? That's you know a really. What, <laughs> you know what we really love that signal one? Del- Delam Elliott, because De- he's really, really he's, good. He's, 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 he's really, 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 really good. good isn't it? <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And obviously, we're now entering the end of the Imperial phase of uh, <laughs> Ghost Rose of Christmas with the last one, which is a huge departure from the rest of them. It's not M.R. James. It's a new script. And it's Stigma, uh, which is, as as you pointed out, the prequel to, to The Man of Born. Yeah, because it's got Peter Bowles in it. I was just making a very flippant observation, which Joel has now turned <laughs> I'd like to pretend it's properly yeah. to The Man of Born like it's, it's not even a joke. It's within it's the universe. universe. It's within the same universe. It was, just a, it was just a thought I had before I had coffee this morning. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Stigma is uh, probably out of all the uh, instalments in Lawrence Gordon Clark's Ghost Stories for Christmas. It's not a ghost story as much as it is a horror film. This is a seventies horror film. This is a horror film, yeah, and it it feels like it could have come from uh, not ta- so much tales of the unexpected, but if you were told it was from part of another anthology yeah. series, you wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's him using it's again. It's showing the breadth of his skills. It's a very different thing. It's very much in the the key of say seventies horror film. It's very The Omen or mm. something. It's basically uh, and very folk horror, a nice yeah. straight folk horror. It's got more in common with Robin Redbreast and things like that. It's people from an urban environment go to the countryside, they mess with it, yeah, and it takes horrible revenge. And remarkably, I mean, it's so, this is so adult. This one, this is just body horror, yeah, and it's horrible, yeah, and it's it's I really liked it, yeah, it's sensational. I think it's very un. Underrated. I think it's, it gets overshadowed by the others because the others are all Victorian. I think that's, yeah. I think that's it. I think well, this is modern, which is new and feels different. Yeah, and it does. It does feel like an enormous because it's like a. It's probably the most basic folk horror plot. Is that there's a there's a witch buried somewhere in the house. Modern people move in, do modern things, and it doesn't go well. Yeah, which you know is that's kind of folk horror one hundred and one. But within that, again, as with the Signal Man, they find so much to do and so much to explore. What's this for? Oh. Matt, we uncovered all the York stone yesterday and found this underneath it. Oh, what a nuisance. Why can't you leave it there? Hey, your dad wants the lawn to go down to the end. Be a bugger to move that. Moving the gate too. Down to the end. Looks nice there. Hmm. It'd spoil a lawn though. Oh well, still, I wouldn't move it. Well, they take advantage of the usual things they've got. They've got these assets, which are low-budget, small cast, mm. nice portable cameras so you can mess about with, and location. Yes. And this is all filmed in Avebury, so you've got this astonishing... Out of every window is a ring of stone. <laughs> There's a, stone. a massive stone. I mean, it, literally, it's, it's more effective than the Rollwright stones in Stones of Blood oh. with Tom Baker. I mean, I'm with, we're talking high good, standards Good there. Lord. <laughs> it's even more effective mm. than that. But it's uh, out the corner of your eye is a sense of enormous ancientness. Yeah. And it's not a studio set. It's a real thing. It feels... One of the great things about Avebury, which is why it's better than Stonehenge, is the village is inside the stone circle. They have imposed modern houses onto something very ancient. So it's a great place to film 
And also the stones at Avebury are they're not hewn really in any respect. They're just raised Fair. upright. Yeah. Whereas at Stonehenge they've been sculpted to look like something. Yeah. As in it's a cathedral of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. The Avebury they're just rocks standing up. And it's weird the way that you can tell this story, which we'll talk about in a minute, eventually builds out. And the final shot is just keeps pulling out further and further on a helicopter shot until you see that the house is within a landscape that is much older than the house. That's the message of it. Yeah. So it's all to do with the fact this isn't a studio drama. That it's is it filmed on location by a man who's really good at making locations creepy it's hard to tell well, it's a coin all right there's more of them there you best leave them there this is also a, a female-centered ghost story. yes kate binchy is the actress um and she begins to experience sort of stigmata whether the stigmata of the witch that you don't know this at the beginning the witch that's been entombed in the foundations of the house. She's brilliant. Yeah, she is. Um, oh, I was it's with Peter Bowles in for a joke because that's kind of the way you'd make someone watch this. You've got Peter Bowles in a horror thing. <laughs> but it's about Kate Binchy. Peter Bowles only turns up about 10 minutes before the end. It's mainly about Kate Binchy dealing with, in a really good, again, 70s horror, Rosemary's Baby, repulsion kind mm. of way. It's a woman alone in a house where something bad's been released and she is dealing with it. She's got the same acting style as Ellen Burstyn has in The Exorcist. There's a very good female-centred ghost story and again robin redbreast exactly that feeling of in a domestic space suddenly this woman isn't in control yes time's like coming about eight he's still at the office i've got to start thinking about dinner beef all right mm. you give me the price of beef doesn't mean i have to like it and her body is rebelling yeah Absolutely, and it makes it's it's just really interesting. So you have Peter Bowles, and it's the forces of masculine rationality. Yeah, it's, it's Doctor Hall there, please. It's very urgent. Oh, where where will he be back? It's it's it's, it's my wife. She's, she's she's bleeding. I don't know. No, I can't wake her. And then you have this woman who knows the truth and is experiencing the truth on her body, and yet isn't believed. Oh, look, to take this, get an ambulance. Get an ambulance! Why? It's, it's, it's mummy. She's, she's bleeding. Look, dial 999. She's, she's lost points! It's a Believe the Women story. Mm. And she's there, and there's a really... Cl- I don't even think I've got close to understanding the relationship with her daughter. She's got a teenage daughter who is flirting with the, the builders who are doing the building work. And there's a sense of sort of the mother and daughter tension, which is which I, you feel without possibly understanding. Mm. It's got a lot of that stuff about uh, sexuality, about menstruation, yes, about yeah. uh, women and, and, and bodily change and probably menopause. And loads of this stuff's in there about what does blood mean. Yeah. The symbolism's really strong. It's written by Clive Exton, the guy yeah. who wrote Jeeves and Worcester. <laughs> I mean, it's a strategy. He also wrote 10 Minute Rillington Play, so he's a good horror writer. Yeah. But this is a guy who is a male TV dramatist, and this is an astonishing women's supernatural thriller. It's extraordinarily bloody. There's a lot of blood in there. It's horrible. I mean, mm. it's it's an- this is another one that when I come to think about which ones I'm going to watch, you don't, I don't put this one on. <laughs> yeah, you don't put this one on to relax. It's, it requires your full attention. And yeah, it's it's it might be why this is the last one in terms of this run. It's why it then gets passed back to people who are going to do Victorian and Edwardian mm. adaptations. There's one more, The Ice House, which is modern, which again is regarded as a bit of a misstep. That's yes. pretty good. Um, but then after this, when they bring the Ghost Story for Christmas back in the 2000s, they are very firmly Victorian and Edwardian because of the coziness and the comfort that comes with mm. antiquity, distance, period drama. This is a period drama, but it's a different. <laughs> this is this is not a comfort blanket this no. one this is a real outlier because it is disturbing it's full of shocking images and there's a lot of them what's interesting about this one being set in the modern day as was was it is a really interesting way of doing a horror or ghost story in the 1970s it's it's kind of in its own way about gentrification yeah um there's it's about uh, modern people moving into an old house and modernizing it can't move it. The stone. Oh, what are they going to do then? Coming back tomorrow with a bigger crane thing. They're modernising the garden in this case, but you've seen, you will have, you know, if you've watched any 70s anthology series, you will have seen that before in Dead of Night. The old place was completely derelict, been standing empty for years and years. It is a bit off the beaten track, I suppose. Which bears a lot of... Uh, has a lot of similarities. With and these. this is very, very, a, a huge cousin of Robin Redbreast, mm. the, the 1970 uh, play for today that was a huge inspiration to The Wicker Man. Yeah. The cottage had been empty so long before you came. Women have always lived here, but not for some time, you see. Quite frequently found birds trapped inside. 
the clash of the very old yes. and the very new. And the very first episode of Beasts, Nigel yeah. Neal's anthology, which is called Baby, which, oh, fantastic. if you can get hold of that too, that's another witch, which yeah. is in the house. Better do it yourself, eh? Well, he, he had to find Oh, out. no offence, Mrs. Girl, because I'll soon put it to rights. Hey, he said he found an old jar. Yes. Some dark things you find. He must have taken it, got rid of it. It's a good way of doing a contemporary story. And, as you know, ghost stories are always easier if you set them in the past, as we've seen. Mm. And like I said, the more modern default is just to go for the Victorian ones because it's easier. It is easier. But because because the 70s is now the past to us, it is, I'd say that stigma has become more interesting as a document of the time. Some more of Yeah, I think uh, the time has been very, very kind to this. Again, there's a there's a feeling that they do two sort of modern set ones. They break with the habit of doing uh, Edwardian and Victorian ghost stories, and it seems a failure, and they then sort of, they rewind and go back. Mm. But I think increasingly, this one particularly, Ice House, I think, doesn't quite work. It's much more of a sort of stand. It's more of a Twilight Zone creepy anthology. I like it. I, I, it's, fun, I like, it's not really a ghost story. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of fun. David Lynchy kind yeah. of weird <laughs> people in a weird cult thing. But mm. uh, this feels like... He's taken it somewhere which he is comfortable going, but you kind of go, if you carried on down this line, it's very explicit, very visceral, very bloody, uh, loads of nudity and lots of examinations of human bodies yeah. that are not in any way prurient, but all about people suddenly mistrusting my body's letting me down. Is that something to do with her teenage daughter? She's suddenly going, she gets older, is she frightened of her own body? Mm. Uh, what the hell's going on? It's very modern, very contemporary, very sort of savage, and not in any way cosy. What is it? I don't know. Losing, I could understand. I think we'll wait for the ambulance. I don't think you can go much further with this kind of development into modern 70s horror and body horror without breaking the contract of cosiness that comes with a ghost story for Christmas. This isn't a story you tell round the fire. This is a story you tell a psychiatrist (laughs) or a doctor. (laughs) The the horrible feeling of panic when she's examining her own body. um, It's, you know, they're they're not prurient, those scenes, as you say. They They have a genuine air of panic, like if something is wrong with you. When you look at yourself, you have that horrible feeling of, oh, if you injure yourself. Yeah. You know, they have that real feeling of rising dread. Yeah, you don't want to... I, I, did the one, I remember just doing something really smart, like breaking my finger, and I couldn't look at my oh, hand. Oh, man, yeah. Is that, it's got a, a lovely thing, which is a lovely thing to do with any form of horror, which is to make it really relatable. Yeah. And everyone has not wanted to look at where they've cut themselves when they've been cutting vegetables. <laughs> this takes that basic fear of saying, I don't want to look at my thumb. How much of my thumb did I cut off? Yes. And then applies it brilliantly to a, a horrible, horrible story of tampering with ancient men here's this is very true i've watched i've watched millions of horror films and i the violence in it doesn't really bother me but there's a bit in, a bit in the james bond film the living daylights where there's a fight in a kitchen and someone picks up a pan of boiling yes. water and throws in a bond and you're like you awful man yeah. what, well, what that you know has what really like. stayed with me because yeah. you've all everyone's burned themselves on boiling water that's why one of the, the key things to any kind of bodily horror is make it relatable that's yeah. why the cutting the ear off in, ter- in reservoir dogs is scary because mm. everyone, everyone's cut themselves shaving yeah. you know what that feels like that's a weapon you can relate to and why the hobbling in misery is really scary because everyone's banged their knee <laughs> make it relatable it's much much better than, than chainsaws weird. the um the female male dynamic in this though is is really interesting and they yeah. play it for all it's worth and peter bowles if you're going to have a figure playing 1970s rational man yeah it's going to be peter bowles i mean he's, he's great in this he role. is absolutely stunning in it he's and i think he's um he's very restrained well that was really delicious where'd you get the beef place i always get the beef what i say is never trust a woman to open a bottle What's that got to do with it? You've spilt the wine on your dress. Yeah. He can he can camp it up in things, but in this he's he's disturbed by this, as disturbed as we are. Everyone gets the tone really right. And one of the great sadnesses about this, we're talking about this being a brilliant woman's voice thing, is Kate Binchy, who is the central character in this and is spectacular. Yeah. One of the best horror performances I've ever seen. She has no Wikipedia footprint. She's the person whose name oh, isn't man. in blue on Wikipedia if you look it up. It's one of those great crimes, you go, someone who could be this good in something. Yeah. And they didn't get pages and pages and pages of other horror films other to be amazing. Stuff to in. Be in, yeah. <laughs> After this, it's then the Ice House, which is yeah. not Lawrence Gordon Clark. So this is, we, in many ways, we have to regard this as the full stop of the series, which I think is a good place. 
I think it's it's successful. I think this yeah. stigma has been unfairly maligned because I think people wanted more of the same. I think they wanted yeah. more Victoriana. I think they were uh, they adjusted to that rhythm which sort of dominates them of um, the Jamesian rhythm of you know languorous long shots of people on the horizon and the beach. Yeah, with a spade and, on their shoulder. Yeah, and then the sudden two seconds of inexplicable horror, and then yeah. back and to this yeah. is a very different rhythm because the horror in this is throughout. Uh, mm. There's a there's a terrific uh, montage of uh, there's the house rebels and bucks yeah. and cracks that's done like repulsion. It's using cinematic techniques that mm. haven't been in these before. So, he, again, he's just showing what he can do. Yeah. The only remit is to tell a scary story. He tells a scary story, but this one, the horror is throughout. It doesn't build to a single unseen thing. It is relentlessly examined. It's not glimpsed out the corner of your eye. Mm. You go in really close onto, like, specks of blood on skin yeah. and the washing of wounds. It's extremely... It's very, very different. But I think it, it's also masterful. It's extremely intimate. You're not spared. There's no distance between you and the protagonist no. at all. And it's, yeah, so the fact that this ends with, and it might be interesting what we're, what we're talking about, this, it ends with a, a total uh, breaking of the contract of cosiness. Yeah. And what Lawrence Gordon Clark has promised you is a by-the-fireside ghost story mm. about a man with mutton-chopped sideburns who opens a book he shouldn't have opened yeah. and then gets hit with a sheet. And by the end of his journey, he comes to this thing which is equally horrific, but done in a completely different language. You couldn't show it to your nan. No, no. Or, or anyone, or humans. It <laughs> cannot be seen by humans. But Stigma is, I think, the end of the, the run for this. And whatever reason he didn't do any more, he leaves you this incredible legacy of, of how to do a type of ghost story that I don't know. The great shame is someone, uh, Netflix or someone, could do this. You could do a series of one-off scary stories that were this length. What's great about them is they're not films, you don't have to watch an hour and a half of this. It doesn't have to have a full story. It doesn't mm. have to have loops and explanations. And one of the things I find incredibly difficult with films that borrow this technique of unease, like uh, Ari Aster's one, like Hereditary mm. and uh, uh, Insidious and things like that, they have to explain themselves. Yes. You get to 45 minutes in and suddenly someone has to say, well, they do it in uh, Paranormal Activity. What this is, is a Phoenician demon. And you go, now I'm bored. <laughs> no, don't explain. Uh, yeah. 45 minutes or 40 minutes is enough time to leave something unexplained. The great strength of that is that they fit in with our experience of being told ghost stories in real life. So if somebody tells you a story that they perceive happened to them, is probably the tactful way of putting it. Um, or, you know, it's a genuine uncanny happening that's happened to them. Um, it has the same structure as these. It will often be personal. Uh, it may all be in the mind, and yeah. it will have that core of not being resolved. And these all have that. They sound like, I mean, which is why that framing device of, of the kind of almost friend of a friend structure you <laughs> yeah. get of them, where Clive Swift is investigating a man 100 years ago. This yeah, happened yeah. To. So it, it, the friend of a friend thing is really important as well because it lends them an extra credibility, and it lends them... A kind of an authenticity, weirdly. Dr. Haynes arrived in Barchester Close in 1872, where he took up residence with his sister as a junior deacon. The dignity of archdeacon had long been the object of his wishes, and there were few who denied that he was admirably suited for the position. The fact that people are telling the stories, that, that there's often someone saying, this happened to me, it does make them feel like a letter to the Fortean Times. <laughs> and the brilliant thing of going, well, it's impossible to take those experiences and make a feature film out of them because at some point you want to go, well, well, was there a ghost? Yeah. And the great thing about this length and this format, the play format, the single play format, which has been destroyed by the tyranny of long-form drama and <laughs> two-hour-long films, is that sometimes something short yeah. is far more effective because of what it doesn't say. The Archdeacon's Diary provides the one outlet for all his troubles and fears. Look at this now. I must be firm, I must be firm, I must be firm. Repeated over and over on subsequent days. Look, look how it bites into the paper here. The other interesting thing that's worth mentioning about these is why they're important to us now. Why these things from the 1970s, these artefacts, are still important to us. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I've been thinking about why folk horror has become the kind of dominant... Yeah. Um, form of horror, especially in this country in the last, I don't know, 15 years. And I think it's it's because we're moving, we're under, we've undergone a revolution in the last 30 or so years. It, you know, we call it the digital revolution, but we've moved online. And so therefore all this analog stuff 
has now become like folk music to us. <laughs> yeah, become, yeah, yeah. In the same way that, we, you know, once we were driven out of villages and farms and we all had to go and work in factories, this has now happened in a, psychologically in a different way. So we're now just curating these, these embers of a culture that was. And that's, I think that's why partly themselves that they're weirdly now haunted themselves. They're relics of a world that we are no longer, you know, we're no longer yeah, part yeah. of. And that helps, I think, with any kind of ghost story. And again, it makes a comparison with what's so great about any ghost story from another culture, any ghost story that involves, say, jinns or, <laughs> or, or the Japanese horror, mm. is that you're not quite sure of the rules anymore. Mm. And one of the great things about this when you watch them is that I watched them in a, or I watched an American uh, high school slasher movie. I know the beats. I know what an American high school is like. I know what the rules are. And they can play some interesting flips with it. But I know roughly what to expect. Yeah. And the great thing about this is that not only are they dealing with uh, a culture, say Victorian culture, that I might not know the rules for. Mm. The 1970s they're set in as well. Yeah. I don't know the rules for. Yeah. Hang on, this shot's taking an awfully long time. Does that mean someone's <laughs> going to jump yeah. out? And actually, no, it's not. I'm just in an unfamiliar space. So I am Ill, Ill at ease. I'm uneasy with the narrative beats of 1970s television. Yeah. And so basically all of it conspires to make you feel both ill at ease which obviously feels like a bad thing but also that's exactly where you need to be yeah. to be told a scary story yeah. you need to be cosy indoor safe but also aware that you don't quite know the rules I think it's not only that they are excellent examples of what they are but also that, as you say time has been incredibly kind to them Yeah. so what you have now are these sort of perfect scary stories but with no barrier no barrier of staginess necessarily no barrier of cheapness they look good uh so basically they can be rewatched they can be studied all the notes in the booklet are from bfi kind of people <laughs> these are serious parts of the british canon of horror and they were lost for a bit because they were on telly and yeah. not repeated thank god they've become really beloved you, you can usually see one or two of these in the schedules at christmas the bbc will show them yeah. because they're really loved now mm. and, and they're quite really precious. rightly i think yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing that that was perfectly for Halloween really spooky Ooh. and of course don't forget Denim Elliot is really good in this Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts find us on social media and don't forget like and subscribe.